I want to take a break from the podcast right now and I want to give you a gift. I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just, I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for, for being a listener and hanging out with me. So the code podcast10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com, your next order of protein powder. You can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. So we don't use fillers, emulsifiers, no fortified vitamins or minerals. It's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane. So it's three ingredients. With my grass-fed beef isolate, that's 100% grass-fed beef, and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth. So just heat and water. And we dehydrate it, that end product to get that collagen-rich protein powder that your whole family can drink. It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean, organic cacao, and the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit, and it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it if I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, and I also love it in my baked goods, from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you wanna give either of these proteins a try or you've already been purchasing these proteins and wanna take advantage of this special deal, the code PODCAST10 is gonna get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. We're welcoming Katie Wells back to the show for the second time. Katie is the founder of Wellness Mama and Wellness, a personal care product line. As a wife and a mom of six, she turned to research and took health into her own hands to find answers to her health problems. Wellnessmama.com is a culmination of her thousands of hours of research and all posts are medically reviewed and verified by the Wellness Mama research team. Katie is also the author of the best-selling books, The Wellness Mama Cookbook and The Wellness Mama Five-Step Lifestyle Detox. And she's the host of The Wellness Mama Podcast. Let's welcome Katie back to the show. Katie, welcome back to the podcast. You're one of my only round twos. And I think it's because I just respect you so much, what you've built, what you're able to manage as a mom, a business owner, a real estate owner. Like just if I could follow in anyone's footsteps, I think you've done just a phenomenal job of diversifying your business and really prioritizing your family. And I just, I always want all your tips. So thank you for being here and being so generous with your time and sharing your life with us. 
Thank you for having me. I feel the same about you. And it's always such an honor and pleasure to get to chat. So I'm glad we get to do this. Yay. Okay. Well, we were just talking before the podcast started about how much your business has changed. Looking back, I was reading, you know, the wellness mama. I want to say it was gotta be like the early 2000s, like way back in the day. When did it start? And can you walk us through like how it's changed over time? Because you went from having a blog to having different media, you know, different social media outlets, a podcast, starting wellness, a, a you know, beauty and skincare company or oral care. It's all the things. It's all the cares, hair care. I want to get into that. And then diversifying by taking the money that you are making in your business and investing in things like real estate. Like you are, I think everyone can get their MBA here listening to the show based on just your life. So can you talk about how it has evolved for you, including investments in brands and things like that? Absolutely. So Soft Start was in 2006 when I had my first son. And the impetus really was reading that for the first time in two centuries, that current generation of children would have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. And that kind of led me on a research path trying to figure out why, because that's an unusual time. Anytime we see that statistic reverse, um, something big is going on, especially when it reverses as quickly as it has in the last couple of generations. So that was part of my driving kind of impetus for starting it. And my background was in journalism and research. So that was my default. And at the same time, I started experiencing my own health problems. What I later found out was Hashimoto's, which I've since recovered from, but kind of that dual purpose happening at once led me into all this research. And I realized there were so many women in a similar place with their own health or with kids experiencing various different kinds of issues. And there just wasn't a lot of information out there, especially directed at moms. And ever since I became a mom, I realized that I think women and moms especially are the most powerful force for change in the world, because not only on a practical level do we control so much of the purchasing power, but we are fundamentally shaping the next generation. And so I realized if I could help moms, then I could hopefully help sort of reverse that statistic. And I realized moms are some of the busiest most overworked, but also the most efficient people on the planet. So anything I could do that would help moms would have a positive effect for all of society. So that's what started off as just a blog in 2006 and then formally with the name Wellness Mama in 2009. And I think it was very much a learn-as-you-go type world at that point. It was the early days of blogging. There There weren't a lot of them out there. And I think there was a huge element of being in the right place at the right time which I'm incredibly grateful for. But the beauty was that this amazing community developed. I'm a really big believer that community is one of the most important aspects of life. And to get to kind of build and form this community of all these moms has been one of the greatest honors of my life. And to now get to connect with millions of moms all over the world and see the changes that are happening in families and kind of at a grassroots level. I know you talk a lot about this too and just give really practical resources Because again, if you can help moms in a practical way, that ripples throughout all of society. Um, So it started off just writing. That was my background. And for a long time, I didn't even have my face on the site. I didn't want to be at all public facing because for me, it was the information that was important. But I realized over time, any type of community requires connection and vulnerability and authenticity. And that's really hard to do when you're just words on a page. And so I started to develop more of a relationship with my readers. And early on, I, I knew the name of the first like thousand readers and commenters I had. And I had like friendships, online friendships with these women. And then as podcasting became more popular, I realized that was a way that 
some people preferred to learn and connect. And so I started learning about the world of podcasting and the podcast developed from there. But I also realized anytime change is going to happen, it has to be both bottom up and top down. So Wellness Mama was very much my grassroots, giving moms the power to create change in their own lives. But I realized also to create lasting change, we needed top-down change and not just on a policy level, because I think politics is actually a very slow way to accomplish anything. And it's usually (laughs) very far behind the curve, but that large companies, for instance, or companies in general with their purchasing power, when they make changes, we see a top-down effect as well. And so I started seeing this play out as more naturally-minded companies started hitting the market. But I also saw things like people would be resistant when massive brands would start purchasing natural companies and want to start boycotting those companies. And I realized I understood the intent behind that, but it was short-sighted because that meant that massive companies were paying attention toward this shift away from artificial ingredients. And so this is actually something we should encourage, but we should support the authenticity of those brands. And so about 10 years ago, really seven, I got seven years ago, I got really into this. I realized I could help businesses as well, both from an advisory capacity and an investment capacity in really developing their core mission and keeping their products really clean and authentic. And then also helping their growth trajectory. Because if I helped moms connect with brands that were in alignment with them and these companies saw growth, that signaled to the market in general that we want these products more and more. We want to move away from the synthetic artificial stuff. And we've started to really see that growth curve happen in the market as well. And I've gotten to be involved with now over 20 companies that are making various types of natural products. And so we're seeing, you know, when a massive company changes their supply chain to a more natural ingredient, that's changing the whole landscape of the market. And we're really starting to see that play out on a worldwide level now, actually. I love it. What were some of the first companies that you started investing in and advising for and some of your favorites that made your life easier by choosing to make things cleaner for your family? Oh, great question. So the first one and the one that will kind of always have my heart is Thrive Market. And that's the one I feel like I got my real life MBA by learning to invest in. I think on paper, I was their first investor. And I love their story because they had talked to all these different massive investment firms and gotten turned down many times. And I think that at that time, the big companies just didn't really see how something like Thrive could fit in. And I saw it from a totally different perspective. I was realized as a mom, I realized we're, we're starting to see, you know, shopping services that bring food to your home get more and more popular. And women are already used to shopping on Amazon. And so I was like, if they do this right, if they execute well, this solves a huge need for moms, especially at the time I was had newborns, I was pregnant, I was breastfeeding, going to the store with five kids was difficult. And so I realized they could really help moms. So I, it was a really funny story. I ended up on the phone with the original founders while we were ironically driving an 18-hour trip to go take our kids skiing. And we had been in the car for 12 hours at that point. The kids were melting down. Everybody had to pee. And so we stopped at a gas station and I took this call in a gas station parking lot. And they're kind of hashing out this idea. And they're like, well, will, will you help us figure out our first few hundred products? Like, what do moms want the most? And so I helped them spreadsheet that out. And it's been an amazing growth curve since then. I think it's also an unrealistic, a little bit like first experience investing because they've done so well. And now that's like what I expect every company to do. But that was also the proof of concept. And it also kind of led to a new investment model that I've been really, really privileged to get to be a part of, which is, and I think you have some experience with this as well, when you let people who have a vested interest in and a platform and who can educate 
become involved with the company, you can both improve the company's growth curve and make sure those products stay authentic and that they stay a good fit for the audience. And so we were able to replicate that with other brands. And like I mentioned, there's been over 20 of them, but everything from organic baby foods to uh, Magic Spoon, which is a protein cereal to a whole bunch of others. And we've kind of gotten to replicate that growth curve with all of those companies. And along the way, I've kind of gotten to learn the ropes of business a little bit. Oh, I love it. And I'm, I feel like honored and privileged to be a part of your investing community. I remember when a friend, mutual friend of ours, John Durant said, you know, if you can, if you have influence, you have to be like a Katie Wells. Like no one has influence like the wellness mama because she's always stayed so authentic to what, you know, what she would eat and what she would share and what she would use in her house and with her friends and her closest family members. And I think your authenticity really changes the game with investing. I think when you start to see maybe other wellness bloggers or, you know, Instagrammers, doing a lot of ads for different brands, they don't have that sales capacity. What you did is you were information and education first. And because of that, that's why your audience is sticky in purchasing things that you recommend. And that's something that I've always admired about you and something that I think is so important when it comes to actually having a community that trusts you. So first of all, like kudos to that, because I know that with the probably number of people you have on your newsletter list and following along on your blog, and it would be really easy to take a bunch of social media income and do a bunch of little deals that weren't aligned with who you are. Has there ever been a time looking back on your career where you were offered a big deal with a company that you thought about, but then ultimately ended up deciding it was a no-go for you? There have been several of those, and I don't want to directly out the companies because I think they do have some good, good products and great points. Yeah, um, but you're right. I think especially in this world and the blogging world, the podcast world, and certainly social media, there's always that temptation of if you're just driven by money, you can make so much money. But if you lose, to me, the the most valuable asset ever is that trust with the audience. Yeah. and so I always look at it as, am I am I authentically a hundred percent behind whatever it is that I'm going to talk about? to the point that I'm willing to risk losing the trust of my audience over it. And that's a really easy screen. And many times it's a simple answer of no. And I also kind of follow the idea that if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Like if I'm not a huge proponent, I'm not going to promote it. And definitely that's led to, I could have made a lot more money, I'm sure, at lots of times. Um, But it was much more important for me to maintain that authenticity. And when working with companies to try to encourage them to do that as well. Even with our own company, Wellness, to the degree that we're not just profit-driven, we started as a B Corp, which means as a public benefit corp, we're not fiduciarily held to just being driven by profit. We can also look at the good of the consumer, the good of the environment. And that was really important to me. And and we're seeing more and more companies come around to that same level of authenticity and third-party verification, which I think is important to consumers as well. I think as people get more and more educated, they're savvy to this and they want to know that the products that they're spending their hard-earned money on are not just um, going to be effective products, that should be a given, but that they're also not hurting the environment and not hurting people. Oh, I mean, I, I'm i like just going to applaud you throughout this whole podcast because I'm in the process of getting verified at, or moving over to a B Corp and I'm doing the long questionnaire. <laughs> I'm in that, like in the back end process of that and getting verifications on everything. And it's it's not an easy send a check and 
answer a small info box. I mean, it is, it is a lot of information that you have to provide and it is taking it to the next level. It's giving a percentage of your profits back to the good of the planet or who you'd like to support. And it's, it's a big deal. I definitely look to support corporations that are B Corp over ones that aren't. If I'm picking up, you know, a nut butter, I love that Wild Friends is a B Corp. And I love that it's female founded. I love that they bootstrapped it out of college. Like if I can make that choice or have the financial ability to make that choice, I'm going to make that choice just to support those brands because that's what brands like yours and mine, that's, that's what we rely on when we're doing it ourselves. Oh, absolutely. And like hats off to you because I have been through that questionnaire and it is a college thesis. Basically, they want to know every level of your sourcing, how you treat your employees, how much time are you giving back? How much money are you giving back? Which is awesome. It would be amazing if all companies just voluntarily had that level of transparency, but I'm glad it's there so that we can, like you said, know businesses that are willing to put in that extra effort. Yeah, absolutely. Let's circle back to this advisory and investment um, portfolio that you're building. When it comes to advising for brands, what are some things that you see brands trying to do that you're advising against? I would say a lot of it centers around just having the deep knowledge of the audience. And for many brands, like I said, moms are their audience. The age group might vary a little bit, but they're all wanting to connect with moms because we have so much purchasing power. And so it's trying to really be a voice of moms in the marketplace and what moms actually want and not let them get distracted by profit or short-sighted decisions that might make more money or cutting the quality of ingredients just to improve profit margins when it's going to break that trust with the consumer and with the moms especially. And so I just am always the voice to remind them of, you know, for moms, it's not just always a price decision. It's not just always a branding decision. For us, this is a, these products are going into our children's bodies decision and it's a big deal. And so the level of transparency that you can provide, the level of showing the quality of these things, the education around the story of the brand. Like you said, we love to connect with brands that align that are either like female founded or that there's an amazing story of someone who had a problem and overcame it. And then the product was a result. And so just encouraging them to kind of double down on those things and not just focus on profit. And thankfully, all the companies I've gotten to work with have already kind of had that alignment from the beginning. And so it's just been really helping them understand and connect with moms and what our, our needs and our pain points are. Yeah. Well, speaking of stories and, and female founded brands, can we talk about wellness and the story behind it and the impetus for you to start this brand? Absolutely. And actually, this is an example where I can say, you know, over the course of blogging for 10 years before we launched Wellness, Many times people told me, you need to do products because you'll make so much more money. And there were many opportunities where I could have partnered with somebody or white labeled something that probably would have made a lot of money. And for a long time, I turned all of those down because it didn't feel authentic. And I wasn't just going to do products for the sake of doing products. To me, it wasn't worth it unless it really could change the market and really improve people's lives. And so after 10 years of just hearing from the audience and having that relationship with the community, I realized there were still a few products that even the most naturally minded people were not necessarily going to make the jump to. And it seemed to really start in oral care and hair care because I had friends who ate totally organic and they their house was non-toxic and they used safe cleaners, but they were still using regular toothpaste, shampoo, conditioner, those kind of products because they didn't want their hair to look horrible or their teeth to be yellow. And I totally got that. And I realized that there weren't at that point natural products that outperformed conventional products, but that were still safe. And so that's why I had these friends who were living totally natural lives, but still using Pantene and Crest. Yeah. And that was 
kind of there. And I've also always followed the principle of 80-20, which is that if you can identify an area where a 20% change leads to 80% of the results, that's a good area to focus. And so when you're looking at personal care, toothpaste and hair care are often the source of 80% of chemical exposure that wow. goes into our body. I think probably most of your listeners are aware of the idea that what goes on our skin, the majority of it enters our body and our bloodstream. And so though, by removing those two products or changing them, you can actually really drastically limit your exposure to certain chemicals. But I realized I had been making these products in my kitchen for years and I had the recipes on site. People could make them, but they were a little bit complicated and they required ordering all these kind of obscure ingredients. And so I realized this was finally an area where I could provide value in really kind of change the way these things were being done and turn that concept on its head. So if we know that what goes on the body goes in the body, instead of just avoiding the non-toxic or the toxic stuff, to me, that should be the given. Of course, we shouldn't put toxins on our body, but could we use that to our advantage? Could we put beneficial things in these products so that as they go on the body, they benefit the body? So really starting from the ground up, the toothpaste went through over a hundred iterations before we got it exactly how we wanted it. And it was built on the concept that it's not only not toxic, it doesn't need a poison control warning like most toothpaste, but its ingredients are so beneficial and it's built around hydroxyapatite, which is a natural mineral that is present in your tooth enamel. So it's actually beneficial to leave on your teeth. So not only do you not have to worry about your child swallowing more than a pea-sized amount, but you can brush your teeth and just spit. You don't even have to rinse because that mineral sitting on your teeth while you sleep will actually help the mineral balance in your mouth. And same thing with the hair care. We built it instead of how most shampoos are actually kind of harsh detergents that strip all the natural oils out of the hair. We built ours on EWG verified safe ingredients that were also essentially hair food. So they could nourish the hair and the scalp from the outside in and kind of provide those nutrients. So instead of let's avoid the bad stuff, it's yeah, of course, let's avoid the bad stuff and let's put the great stuff on our skin, in our mouth so that we're benefiting from the outside in while we sleep as well. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, there is sometimes an online fight between whether you should have fluoride in your toothpaste or not. And the comments get heated the minute you go there. (laughs) So... So can you explain a little bit further about hydroxyapatite and how that's kind of replacing fluoride? Absolutely. This is an area I did a lot of deep dive research, primarily when I started having thyroid problems. This was specifically relevant to me because there are compounds in fluoride that mimic the way that iodine acts in the body. So if you already have a propensity for thyroid issues, fluoride can interfere with the absorption of key nutrients that you need in your thyroid. Kids also have relatively high thyroid activity because they're rapidly growing. So yeah, you're right. Fluoride is controversial. There are definitely studies that show that it can help the hardness of teeth, but we also know it. there's really no benefit to ingesting it. I kind of use the analogy of it would be like eating Band-Aids when you get cut. Like it can be made simple topically, that's up for debate, but consuming it and anything kids put in their mouth, they're also consuming. There's no chance of swallowing a little bit of it. And so hydroxyapatite is an amazing natural solution that's being studied more and more right now. So while fluoride helps the hardness of teeth, there's also some evidence it can make them a little more brittle over time. And you also see things like fluorosis where you get the white lines on your teeth from overuse of fluoride. Whereas hydroxyapatite doesn't have those problems because like I said, it's the mineral that already is naturally occurring in tooth enamel. And the body has this amazing process of remineralization that occurs where the minerals in your saliva interact with your teeth and with the dentin in your teeth to form a continual mineral barrier on the teeth. And if that process gets interrupted, then that's when you can start to see that's one of the causes of tooth decay. And so hydroxyapatite directly puts that mineral back in the mouth 
so that it's present in saliva. And I also always tell moms, of course, there's the dietary component of this because saliva is created from the inside out. So you also, of course, want to make sure your kids are getting a nutrient-dense diet and getting enough fat-soluble vitamins, which is a big key in that remineralization equation as well. But putting the minerals directly in the mouth right before sleep is a great way to really boost that process. And it's just supporting what the body does naturally. I love it. So let's take it a step further. You mentioned fat-soluble vitamins and nutrient-dense diet that supports our saliva health. What what are some things that you're putting on your kid's plate or helping support that to helping that are helping to support that process? Yeah, it's a great question. I always look at like the nutrient density volume of food and like nutrient density per calorie, not ever just the calories in food. And especially with kids, it's an equation of how can we get the most nutrients in them in the fewest bites possible? Because when they hit their hunger limit, they stop eating. So how do we make every bite the most nutrient dense? And there's great books that are kind of dense, like Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, that really go into the breakdown of the different foods and what fat-soluble vitamins they contain. But the short answer is you anytime you're talking about whole food sources that are traditionally prepared, you're going to be ahead of the curve with that. With kids especially, it's making sure they're getting enough proteins and that the fat-soluble vitamins, when possible, are coming from food. So that could be things like liver and fatty fish. Fish oil thing is a little bit more complicated and a little bit more controversial. It depends on who you ask on that one. I think there's still cases where it's really, really helpful, but I always default to food sources whenever possible. So a lot of our diet revolves around traditionally prepared foods like meats and seafood, bone broth, organ meats. And then we add in vegetables, often cooked vegetables, things like sweet potatoes, um, but really maximizing that nutrient density. I love it. We just started getting Force of Nature delivered here, that protein company, and they do a blend of that gives you a ground beef with a bunch of liver and organs. And that's been the easiest, sneakiest way to get it in around here. Yeah, especially with kids, because then you can kind of disguise the taste. A tip I give to moms, especially after having babies or if your hormones are low at all, not everyone loves this tip, but I just get grass fed liver from a local source and I cut it into little squares. And then I just swallow a few squares of liver raw every day. And people are like, ew, but you don't taste it when you just swallow it. And I notice a huge burst of energy when I do that regularly. Yeah, just loading up on vitamins. So it's the cow's multivitamin for you right there. All right. So I want to take it back to your business because I just, like I said, I think you are very, it's just amazing the business that you've been able to build and how you've been able to diversify. So when you first started your blog, do you remember how long it was before you were making any money on your blog? And how are you making money on a blog? Yeah, it was a couple of years, I think, before it really started making any noticeable income. And quite honestly, for me, it was always a mission. So I would have and will keep doing it even if it was never making money because it was so important to me. But at the time, we were actually living on a really tight budget. And I remember early on, I started putting Amazon affiliate links just because it was helpful to people. Like if I was going to list ingredients, they would ask me where they were. And so I was like, I'll just link to them. And I was balancing the checkbook one month and I was like, wait, why is there money from Amazon? Did we get a refund? Or like, what did I order something and forget? And where did this money come from? And I realized it was from the Amazon affiliate program. And it was kind of the first time I realized you could actually make money by helping people online. (laughs) And all the business books I've read, at least the ones I really like resonate with, they talk about the idea of if you want to make money, provide value and help people because money is really just a a representation of value. It's exchanged. And so the more that we're able to solve a problem or help someone, often that is compensated by money. But so basically early on, again, it was important to me to stay authentic to the mission And so I didn't want to jump into just 
like sponsorships and ads right away. To me, the affiliate links were a great early entry because it was kind of the analogy of if someone came over for coffee uh, and they said they liked my shoes and they asked where I got them, I would tell them. But if I wouldn't just like try to sell my friend's shoes who didn't ask. <laughs> yeah. And so affiliate links were kind of the gentle way of if they wanted to click on it, they could, but there was never any. And then as the site grew and it got more expensive to maintain, we introduced ads with very tight filters. Cause I was like, I don't want ads showing up for, you know, pharmaceuticals or McDonald's or whatever. And so we started introducing ads that fit in over time. And that let me continue to just write and educate and not have to follow any kind of protocols or write about certain things and be able to just share information. And as the site grew, those were what supported it for a long time. No, it's amazing. It really, the whole blogging community and that, I mean, just that career in general, looking at the people that I've interviewed who've had really successful blogs like yours, it's just amazing when people, when you have the readership and you have the community and people are going to your site and you can show how many people are visiting that you you have people out there willing to spend money to, to throw an ad up and that you can filter it the way that you want. But just that that option is just even available to people is great because it's led you to be able to build this amazing brand. So when it came to podcasting, how, how has that business worked for you? Because I look at your life and I go, you blog, you have a product company, you have five children, you have a husband, you have house, you have real estate, you have, you're, you're advising for all these companies. I want to know the nitty gritty of how you do it all and how you get efficient with it. Because I know there are so many people out there who want to start a blog, a blog or they want to start a podcast. And they're like, I don't even have the bandwidth to do that. Do I edit? Do I, you know, how does it work for you on the back end? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's actually the biggest question that I'm realizing will be the most helpful to answer for other moms. Because like I said, moms are the busiest people on the planet and we juggle plates constantly. And I think anything we can do to help reduce that overwhelm makes such a big impact. Um, I actually have six kids now so since that point, but I realized this was a fun business crossover into real life as well. And I've just finished a book. It's not out yet, but it's working title is Zen and the Art of Dirty Dishes. And it kind of really delves into this whole topic because I realized I was very much not alone in this. And the question I was getting the most from people was, how do you balance it all? And so what I realized was I hit a point actually of really severe burnout a few years ago where I realized I could not keep all these plates in the air the same way that I had and that I was too exhausted. And I came really close to deleting the blog because I was like, I can't, obviously my family is not a variable that I'm going to let suffer at all because of this. There's too much going on. So if anything has to go, it's the business. And, but in that moment, I also realized it's not the business that's causing the stress because that's relatively automated now. There's systems in place. It runs. I have help. There's a whole team. It's more of all the other variables in my life that are causing the stress. And so I kind of stepped back and said, well, why is that? And I realized it was because in the business, I ran everything by systems and spreadsheets and SOPs, and we knew where we were going and we had OKRs and we were working as a team. And at home, I was managing eight people's lives in my head and running all of the home stuff, all of the homeschool stuff, all of the kids stuff, everything just in my mind at all times. And it kind of goes to the idea of, I call them open loops, that the more open loops we have running, especially as moms, the higher our stress level. And I realized it's not actually the getting things done that was this, the cause of stress for me. It was the open loops and then uncertainty and then having to answer all the excess questions. So I kind of worked backwards. I think of most things in life in terms of math. And so I was like, well, if the variable is actually the stress, not the number of tasks I have to do, how do I solve for the variable of less stress while still getting the same amount of things done? And then worked backwards to put really strong systems in place 
on the home front, basically kind of started running my house with the mindset of a CEO instead of just trying to manage everything in my head, realizing my business would never have worked if I was just trying to do every single job for everybody else, manage every detail in my head, and then wait till 4 p.m. to figure out what I was gonna write about the next day, you know, like, but yet I'm trying to wait till 4 p.m. to figure out what I'm cooking for dinner and trying to manage everything in my head all the time. And so I built out a system that I used in the home that kind of mimicked the business systems and got my kids much more involved and basically built that team mentality with movement toward a goal. And that completely shifted my stress level. And so basically like the big key of that, I think like every big change in life was actually the mindset because as moms, we're capable of getting so much done. It's not the doing that's hard. It's the uncertainty or the stress or that when everything builds up and then there's 90 things on your plate. So for me, it was everything from simple stuff like having a schedule of when laundry was going to get done and who did dishes when and all of those pieces. So there wasn't question, there wasn't uncertainty about it. And then solving for the variable of reduced questions. Because especially with little kids, I feel like the thing that hits us the most is that mom fatigue at 4 p.m. when you've heard the word mom 8,000 times in a day and everybody's asking you a million questions all day and you're just done. And so I was like, well, how can I provide ways that they can answer a lot of these questions without having to come to me every single time? So everything from little things to put the dishes in the bottom cabinets so the kids can actually reach them. So they're not asking me for water eight times a day to having systems where they can do a lot of the stuff themselves. And I realized I was basically doing the same thing I had done early on in business, which was early on, I would hire people and not let them do anything because I thought I could do it better. And I realized, while it was true that maybe I could do any individual thing better that day, maybe, I definitely couldn't do everything and do it better. And that I had these amazing team members who could specialize and were incredible if I let them have autonomy. And I realized I was doing the exact same thing with my kids where I was trying to do everything for everybody so that the dishwasher got loaded perfectly. And I was depriving them of ownership of those things and of autonomy. And so I took a really hard look at what are they capable of doing that I'm not letting them do themselves and realized it was almost everything. And so at that point, we built a whole family system. We got everybody on board. We wrote a family manifesto. So the kids understood where we were going and what the purpose was. And we had this family culture and team mentality. And then all of a sudden I had my four-year-old doing laundry by herself because she could. And it, it completely changed overnight. And I also realized that while in business, we have a business plan and we have a clear direction. Often, because we're so busy as moms, it's hard to sit back and figure out those same types of ideas for a family, but that's the most important work that we'll ever do. And we sat down and looked at like, what do we want our kids to know by the time they leave home? What actual skills do we want them to have? Not just taking tests at school, but what actual tangible life skills do they need? And then how do we work backwards so that we actually have time to teach them those things? And we built that all into the system. And now the home runs very much like a well-oiled business machine. And no one's coming to me with questions because they don't have answers to those basic daily questions. I have some systems in place, but I definitely want all of your tips. When it comes to, for you, when it comes to looking like at a day, how far in advance are you planning out things like, sports schedules, meal plans, your work schedules and blocking that, like run me through a week in the life of you. Yeah. My, my idea is anything that can be automated, you automate and anything that can't be fully automated, you systematize. And so I sat down and spent probably a couple solid days of work, but writing a seasonal meal plan that was based on 
the rotating produce of each season. And then I would build out three different weeks of different meals during each season of three months. And then I made note cards and shopping lists with the ingredients for each of those. So that let me only shop once a week. Everybody ahead of time knew what the seven meals for that week were. And as the kids got older, they were actually capable of making some of those meals on their own because they had done it before. And I used a program called Kids Cook Real Food, which is an online class. And all of my kids, even the little one now, can cook. They're very proficient. They can use regular kitchen knives. They can chop. They can do all the traditional kitchen skills. So I did that once and now it just repeats on autopilot. And we know what has to be gotten at the store for every individual meal plan. So anybody can go shopping. Everybody knows who's cooking what, what night. And so that became a variable that wasn't an open loop anymore. Same thing with laundry schedules. With eight of us in a house, laundry would get backed up and then everybody would be stressed. Now there's a schedule for all of that. Same things with the kids in school. They know ahead of time what their school targets are for the whole year and when they have to hit them and they can work ahead or if they want to get behind and have to catch up, they can do that too, but they don't have to come to me with those questions. And then I build my work time into their school time. So they're most often doing schoolwork between nine and 12. And so that's my most often work time other than Mondays or my podcast day. And I'm also a big fan of batching. So often I will batch cook on the weekend which lets me concentrate the whole messy kitchen experience into one afternoon and have food for the week. I batch work stuff. So podcasts are on Mondays um, and then I'm done for the whole week, but really just trying to automate any variable that can be automated. Same thing with kids activities are recurring and we have systems for who's taking them, who's picking them up. Thankfully, we live in an area where they can actually bike to a lot of stuff, but I know that's not a variable that works for most people. And they even have written schedules for school, for home life, for activities. And so, like I said, everybody just knows when it's lunchtime, what's for dinner, when they have to go to activities, when they need to have laundry done because they're going to need it for pole vaulting or whatever it is. And so that machine just runs. So looking at kind of like real life on top of that is, have you had a child who, one of the six who doesn't want to eat a certain thing that you're making or doesn't want to do a certain thing that's on the schedule? How are you kind of planning and approaching those challenges? That's a great question. So I'm also a big proponent that kids are capable of understanding so much and that often education is 90% of the effort. So from the time they were born, we had conversations about, especially the little ones, our family culture, but also about the way we eat and why and how various foods affect the body. But I also didn't want to ever create a restrictive environment around food because I have seen how that plays out. And even in my own life, things that were restricted, I wanted to do more at a certain point in teenage years because that's a natural psychological stage. And so we've educated them from an early age and I've explained to them that there's a breakdown of responsibility within a household. And as a parent, it's my responsibility to buy food and make sure they have nourishing food. And when they're little to cook it for them. And as they're older, we cook it together, but that's my responsibility. And their responsibility is to learn to listen to their bodies and to pay attention to their hunger cues and to both learn to like new foods and or be responsible when they don't and still be kind. So basically the way that plays out in our house is I plan and cook the meals and they can always choose to eat or not eat. So I very much respect that they say they're not hungry, even if that's, I don't like what you cooked. And so therefore I'm going to say I'm not hungry. Yeah. They never have to eat anything, but they don't get to just go make something else because they don't like what we're having as a family. They also always have the option to volunteer to cook dinner. So then they can make something that they want to make, but within the idea that I only buy nutrient dense foods. So anything available in our house, they can eat and they can cook. And then there's foods that are always available, very nutrient-dense foods. I'm like, if you are actually hungry enough to eat raw carrots, you can eat as many as you want at any time of day, period, things like that. But we built systems around that so that there's 
I, I feel like a very positive food culture. And then the other side of it is I don't restrict. So if none of ours have any life-threatening allergies. And while we had a couple that had eczema early on, that's now they've healed that. So there's no reason for me to restrict their food choices. So if they're not home, I don't offer any like hard and fast rules of what they can and can't eat. They understand from a young age how food impacts their body. And if they go somewhere and choose to eat something at a birthday party that they might not normally eat at home, that's entirely their decision. And they get no judgment from me about that. But often I notice they'll feel bad. And that's the best teacher. I think as moms also, natural consequences are always the best teacher because that's anytime that lets me off the hook of being the bad guy. And they learn, I feel like that's how I've learned most of my life lessons was natural consequences. So when it comes to once they're responsible for their laundry, they're responsible for their laundry. And if they run out of clothes, that's not my problem. That's their problem. And they learn from that natural consequence. Same thing with like, if the kitchen isn't cleaned up after a meal, we can't cook the next one. So there's no food, natural consequence. And they learn very quickly and just building that in. So it's not me nagging ever or having to be on them about deadlines. So when the, when the dishes do pile up and it's someone's responsibility and it's the next meal, how does that conversation go? Just, I make it like a very clear, but kind point that I'm, it's impossible for us to use the kitchen right now because it's messy. Yeah. And so if, if anyone's hungry, feel free to come clean the kitchen so that we can make the next meal. I love it. I love it. No emotional, no emotion tied up there. It's just like, Hey, this is kind of the way it works. So whoever's ready to help out, let's do it. And I think that helps my stress level as a mom a lot too, because it's also, I don't bear the entire emotional responsibility for everything. We bear that together. That also lets me stay in a very much lower state of stress. Because I've realized in you know 10 years of therapy on myself, it often is the little moments that happen in childhood that ha- really stay with us in a profound way. And we don't realize necessarily how much that really ties into our programming. As an example, I remember one time being really little and dropping something And my mom having a totally normal reaction and just be like, why did you do that? And as a three-year-old, I didn't have a context for how to understand why I did that. And I don't even think I intentionally or really remember the emotional processing that happened, but I realized I internalized from that, like, you're not good enough. It's not safe to make mistakes. And so understanding that as an adult made me really, really conscious of how do I learn to develop good communication patterns with my kids so that hopefully I don't give them too many of those moments. Like we all do the best we can. And inadvertently, I'm sure we all say things that we don't mean or they're taken in a way we don't mean, but how can I stay patient as much as possible and have kind communication with my kids? Because that idea that the voice we have with our kids becomes part of their inner voice and the systems have really helped me to stay in a state of calm and patience a lot more. Oh, I'm, I feel like you're preaching to the choir. I'm reading a bunch of parent books all the time just because I really, I mean, what a heavy responsibility to know that your the way you talk to your kids becomes their internal voice and that these little moments have such big impact. Who are some of your favorite experts in the parenting space that you look to? I really enjoyed, uh, I believe her name's Amy McCready and she has positive parenting solutions and she has it kind of broken down by age. So everything from, obviously you're going to parent a toddler a lot differently than a teenager. And right now I'm getting to kind of experience both of those at the same time, but she has really practical systems for each of those different ages. And for some of the stuff we've talked about of just getting kids involved without the fight and what to do when they're younger and they just have a meltdown and kind of really helps to navigate a lot of those. I'd say she's probably been one of the most helpful resources I've found. I love it. Well, you're getting your kids involved. They're taking ownership. They're feeling like, I'm sure, very confident and resilient based on the, that type of a practice in the family. When it when you look at outside of food, how have you impacted their life 
by the purchasing choices that you're making. You've obviously started Wellness, so I'm sure they use your products. But what are what are some ways that you've helped them build a holistic lifestyle? Yeah, so I think again the the first key is always education, and they understand how how they interact with their environment impacts how they feel. But we've also been very open with them about business and finances and all that from a very early age, and so they understand how our businesses run and why we make the purchasing decisions that we make as consumers as well. And I see that starting to play out in their lives as well. That's actually something that's been very important to me, realizing they've seen us be entrepreneurs their whole lives. And so I think we've basically ruined them for traditional jobs, which I'm totally fine with. But (laughs) understanding that, I'm like, we also need to then give them the requisite skills to exist in the entrepreneurial world. And so we became like very intentional about this when my oldest was five and we started looking at school options. And I asked the question of, well, which of which option best prepares kids for whatever the future is going to look like in 18 years? We don't know. I certainly, there was nothing that prepared me for the job I'm doing now yeah. that existed then. And so I was like, well, it's not, if it's not knowledge down, it's got to be skills up. And what are the skills that we can give our kids that best prepare them for whatever an uncertain future looks like. And that became things like critical thinking, creativity, maintaining a love of learning, more actual skills than just let's throw knowledge at them and make them memorize it. And so we kind of built their whole schooling plan based on that and on on very immersive hands-on experiences. And part of that is that as they hit the teenage years, which we now have two and then almost a third, they have to run a profitable business for a year before they can have a phone or a car. And so this was our way of teaching them in a very hands-on way about providing value to other people and solving problems and realizing you can teach them many of the things you want them to know, like financial management and consistency and tolerance for failure. Because as entrepreneurs, we yeah. all those things by hands-on running a business. And so it's been really fun to watch that play out and get them to like getting to see them deep dive into, well, what are problems that exist in our community or in our world at a large scale? And how can I solve that? It's also really fun to get to see how, in a sense, that's almost easier for kids because it's unexpected. So I always encourage parents, if you're wanting to get into the entrepreneurial world, maybe consider doing it with your kids because age actually is an advantage. It's so rare to see someone under 18 starting a business that they tend to actually get help. People are willing to help. They get more exposure. And so when possible, let that be a family bonding experience to solve some of these problems and start an entrepreneurial career of some kind. Yeah. And these little children are brilliant too. They come up with the best ideas. What, I mean, obviously if that's a barrier for them to get a phone or a car, it's also very motivating, I'm sure. What age are you introducing a phone and like at what age are they able to start their own business? They really have the freedom to start their own business whenever they feel ready. We more formally focus on that around 12 or 13, but even our little ones now have just grown up in that environment so much that they kind of think like that. But really just the oldest now actually has his own phone. He's 15 mm-hmm. um, and he's driving. So that, and he, but he's had actually multiple successful businesses, including he and his friends wrote a cookbook together that ironically outsells mine on Amazon <laughs> every week, which I love, but they, it was all for them about helping kids learn to cook real food. And so they executed it, they pitched it, they got it in advance and then they outsold their advance and all of that. And it's been amazing to watch. So now he has a phone and then we have a family phone that stays at the house. So if any of the other kids are babysitting, they have the ability to call us if they need us, but they don't have their own phones. And we still don't allow devices in rooms or blue light after night, after dark or anything like that. But yeah, it definitely was motivating for them that that was the barrier. So I'm sure you've come up against your kids and had fights with your kids based on their access to screens. 
what's the conversation? It sounds like it's education first, but what's the conversation that you're having with your kids? Because those are boundaries that I have with our kids as well. I mean, they're a lot younger than yours, but I know I'm going to be fighting this fight for a long time. So I don't want to fight if I don't have to. I want to, I, and I love your advice. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I feel like it's, we're the first generation that's having to navigate this with really young children because the internet didn't, I'm going to age myself, but the internet didn't really exist in a way that was accessible when I was their age. So we're the first ones who are really getting to navigate this. And I think this is actually something we've talked a lot about because they see us on computers all the time for work. And so to me, it was disingenuous to say, you know, technology is bad or you shouldn't use it. It became much more about technology like anything else is a tool. And a tool can be used for good. It can be used for bad. It can be very effective. It can also destroy your productivity. And so, of course, like you said, of course, education is the first key. But then also, you know, kids pay attention to what we do and only to some of what we say. And so it became important of, I'm on my computer for work and I verbalize to them when I'm working. Often I'll have kids sitting with me and they're asking what I'm doing and I'll explain the business stuff I'm doing to them, but they don't just see me scrolling TikTok all day long or anything like that, nor do we really watch much TV. So that was a thing that we modeled first. And also it's just not really part of our family culture other than occasional family movie nights. But it also was important to me realizing that technology is an amazing tool that they will likely have access to their whole lives. It's not likely that, you know, technology is going away. So how do we teach them to be good stewards of it early and also give them access to it in ways that can benefit them learning? Kind of tying back into the school conversation, I remember in school being asked, like, why do I have to memorize this? I can just look it up. Or why can't I use a calculator? And teachers being like, well, you won't always have a calculator at your fingertips. And the irony is... You do. At all times. And so knowing that it's not going away, how do we help them know how to use it effectively at a young age? And also set a few firm boundaries like we don't use technology after dark because blue light can interfere with your sleep. And they understand that. But I wanted them to have resources. So they, for school, have laptops and then they have tabs already saved for educational websites, places they can go to research things. And I even actually encourage that because I realized they're likely going to have a career of some kind that involves technology. And so every day in school, they have something called topics where they in, they research for about 20 minutes anything that's interesting to them. And they just give me a short summary. And then they have resources on places they can research. We also do things like watch three TED Talks every morning with them on unrelated topics. And this was a, a piece of advice from a friend of mine. I asked him, you know, if you could do one thing to help improve education, what would it be? And that was his answer. He said, kids are natural pattern makers. And it's so ingrained in them, they will find patterns and connect dots even if they don't exist. So if you give them three unrelated topics per day, they will figure out how to combine them in a usable way. So we give them three TED Talks on unrelated topics and they'll start to draw connections of maybe how something in psychology could be also applicable in robotics or whatever the case may be. So I would say we actually encourage conscientious technology use. We don't really restrict it at all. But I think by modeling, not overusing it, we, we've just kind of built that into our family culture. I also get very much the temptation to use it as a babysitter because I remember having toddlers and that was so much easier. But just having things in their way that are entertaining that are not technology. So our house in a lot of ways traditionally looks ridiculous because that's It's always been my focus. It's not perfectly decorated at all. And in fact, we have a gymnastics mat down our hallway. We have yoga swings and rings hanging at various places all over the house. We have art supplies literally everywhere. But for me, that was put things in their way that encourage creativity, movement, critical thinking, the things that are important. And so that technology is not as enticing. No, I love that so much. What, when you look at 
them watching these TED Talks and maybe summarizing a topic or your topics, are you creating this curriculum for them as a homeschooling mom? Or is it is it something that you're using a homeschooling association or how does it how does it really work on the day to day? Because I think most kids go to a traditional school and homeschooling has become really, really popular recently, obviously through COVID and everything. What does it look like day to day to homeschool your kids? And how do you get it done? This is actually something else I'm working on having in a more tangible format to share with families. But the short answer is that we kind of 80 20 it, figured out the check boxes they had to check to meet the very basic state requirements and then gamified that. So like, these are the things you have to learn. How quickly can you learn them? Once you've shown you've mastered them, you're done. You never have to do algebra again once you've learned algebra. So there's a short amount per day that's dedicated to that kind of stuff. But we try to make it as fun and gamified as possible. And from there, it's much more passion-driven by each child of how can we teach them these life skills through something they're already interested in. So for instance, we have kids who pole vault and pole vaulting, they're jumping over a bar. And essentially, there's a lot of calculus involved because the height and how fast they're jumping, it's essentially calculating the antiderivative of a curve. So I've been able to teach them calculus. They don't know it's called calculus, but through their pole vaulting. And it's applicable to them because they need to know how far away they need to run and what pole to use. Thankfully, they're their coach is also very math-minded, so they've learned a lot from him. Same thing with, they've all had different passions in music and just giving them the tools to pursue that and then weaving other things into that as well or letting them, anything they're curious about, giving them free reign to start researching. And it's been so fun to see that play out and how they've built a culture of challenging each other around those things, whether it's physical activities or they went through a phase of all learning how to solve Rubik's Cubes or whatever it may be, they've, they've turned it into a game and they don't even, I don't think, realize that they're constantly learning. It's just fun to them. They're playing. They're, they're learning playing. through play. So logistically, you have them watch the TED Talks. They connect the dots. They're learning something there. Are you in the room working at that period of time? On your, You're also working and they know that you're working? Yeah, and I then... Can. So, cause it sounds like it's nine to noon and you're all together. I just am trying to envision where you are in your house and how this actually works. Because I think homeschool sounds really enticing, but I'm also concerned if I'm going to be educating my children at the same time, <laughs> like how you get it all done. Well, and I take a somewhat controversial viewpoint on this of like, I do think they need to check the basic boxes and we do have to like, in a more structured way, teach them how to read and teach them the basics of math. But I actually think in a lot of cases, kids would be better largely left to their own devices than stuck sitting down for eight hours a day, especially the way that certain school components are taught. Like the idea that you start with a hundred and anytime you make a mistake, you lose points, which is the opposite of how actual life works. Um, So I think I know that's a big concern for parents. I, I personally think that in most cases, kids would actually be better just, you know, playing in the woods than being in an overly rigid environment. But I think a good balance is actually the best key. I'm also very fortunate that my parents are both retired and live close by. So on days I have podcasts, they get to be there with the kids. And I know most people don't have necessarily access to retired parents to help teach. So I'm very grateful for that. But there are so many amazing systems already online that have... A full, either a full curriculum you can use that doesn't take as much time or just those basics. And then you get to build out the fun ones for yourself. And I think beyond that, it's just creating an environment that's conducive to learning and to them not getting too bored, but also to them understanding that boredom is a natural part of life and it can fuel creativity. And so I'm not the antidote to their boredom. And when they get bored, they have opportunities to go find something that's interesting to them and learn. Oh, it's 
It's interesting to think about like the amount of time, like even just nine to noon. And do you think that it's short because what's happening at school is so inefficient and you're able to ensure that your children are learning what they needed to learn for the day in a shorter period of time, thus freeing up the day for them to be physical, to be outside? Or I mean, like, what do you think? You're you're on the other side of it. What it seems like from my standpoint, we're filling an eight hour day for a child and then we're giving them four hours of like workbook homework. And then they're finally getting to blow off steam after that. And they're jumping on a phone and they're staying up till two in the morning and they're getting horrible sleep. And then we're seeing an increase, you know, anxiety, depression, social comparison, processed food eating. Like it's no surprise to me that all these things are coming on the back end of them having so much work and competition to, to, move on in life or go to college or get their first job. I mean, you're, you're grassroots teaching them to be entrepreneurs. So they never need to fight that fight. But what do you think the, you know, the problems are in traditional schooling? Such a multifaceted question, but I think so important. So I'm a big believer that in area, every area of life, we should constantly reevaluate and question everything to the degree that this is a Year, a yearly practice I have is I make a list of everything I think I believe. And then I make a point during that year to question everything line by line. I think traditional education is perhaps uh, a little bit of a sacred cow in an area people are afraid to question. But if you really research it, it's somewhat fascinating. A lot of the time limitations around school were more logistical than actual educational. It was that if both parents were working, there needed to be a place that kids were entertained and oversaw, overseen for eight hours a day. And so they figured out how to make what kids needed to learn, fill those eight hours. So for me, it was going back to first principles and asking the question, is this actually the most effective way to teach kids? Could there be a better way that they can learn more efficiently? And like I said, going back to those skills of what skills do I want them to most importantly have as adults? And does this current system maintain those skills and enrich those skills? Or does it actually my argument would be in many cases traditional school takes away from those skills. And so building the whole system around that, it wasn't even that I was just trying to minimize school time. It was that when you're in a homeschool environment and you don't have the constraints of having to switch classes, having to get to and from school, like all of the logistics, they easily get done in that amount of time. And then they are outside playing for six hours a day. So they've kind of reversed the curve instead of they finally get time at the end of the night, they're getting their school done in the morning and then they're outside doing what I say play is the most important work of children. They're doing the really important thing, which is playing all as much of the day as possible or pursuing their creative interest or whatever it may be. I realize it's very much just a deviation from the traditional, but it's so exciting to see so many families questioning that. And unfortunately, I think a lot of families have been pushed into homeschooling just because of the logistics of the last couple of years. A very overwhelming thing to just jump into, especially if you're trying to recreate the existing system. And that was, I realized how that was programmed into me early on, even though understanding all of that and wanting to create a totally different system, it was so ingrained to try to replicate a traditional school environment at home. And I had to consciously break that pattern and consciously keep questioning, is this the most efficient way? How could this be better? In what ways could we more enrich these skills? And kind of having a checklist that I go through for anything school related of, does this enhance curiosity? Yes or no. If it's a no, it's not even gonna, we're not even going to consider it. Does this teach them to think critically? Does this maintain their love of learning? Is this good for their body and their mind? And we go through that whole list. And that's kind of how our system has developed. I'm not a big fan of testing, even though that was actually one of my favorite parts in school. But when we test them just to see where they are, they are outperforming traditional school kids. And I think it's because they're they're learning from a young age to keep thinking outside the box. Oh, 
You make me want to homeschool. I'm going to need your book to be published ASAP so that I can learn how to do all the things you do in a systemized way. I think I'd love to leave our readers with what you think are the most important things to automate in their life that are going to, that's going to free up some time for them to do the things that they love to homeschool their kids. If they decide to do that, to um, write a book or start a podcast, what do you think needs to be automated most? My metric is anything that happens at least once a day should be a first priority for automation. So food is a great place to start because we're all eating typically multiple times per day. And that's an area that your kids can benefit so much by getting involved. So I always say start with food as a great place. And then any activities, chores, household responsibilities. I made a a list of all of those in the beginning. And then we figured out as a family culture how to divvy those up and how to schedule them. But again, anything that happens daily or more than once a day, start with those and that will eliminate 80% of the logistical stress. And then the less common things don't end up taking that much time or stress beyond there. So good. Any resources that you use to order online that you, other than Thrive Market, that you love and rely on to support your family to live a holistic life? Thrive is definitely my go-to and I try to support local farmers as much as possible beyond that. We actually have several that deliver, which is amazing. I use an app called Real Plans for all the meal plans now because I can send it with even an assistant or a kid to the store and they can shop. And then I use an app called Notion that's free that keeps track of a lot of these things. You can build out templates. And so anything recurring gets a Notion template that I can share with the kids as they get phones or with other people who are helping out, or I share it a lot with other moms. So everything from meal planning to book lists to just like with business running goals and business plans, we run personal, what's called OKRs, which stands for objective and key results for our house. And so it's like, what are our three-month projects as a family? What are our one-year projects as a family? And how do we know that we're getting there? And that kind of gamifies it and lets us all be on the same page. Oh, so good. So good. I'm downloading Notion. I'm linking out to your book, your podcast, Wellness. We have your toothpaste. I will say the mint is not super minty, which is great because Sebastian will put it in his mouth and keep that hydroxy appetite. He's swallowing it probably, let's be honest. But it's just so good. Thank you for always sharing your life with us here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast and for sharing your life online. It's You're making the world a better place. Thank you for having me. And I don't, I don't know if we've even publicly announced it yet, but I'll say it here first. We have a kid's toothpaste coming really soon that's strawberry flavored. So soon there will be a kid option. Yay. I love it. Well, it's, you know, it's been over a year of him using the regular one. So if he wants strawberry, great. He can make that choice, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're on board. Oh, that's so exciting. I'll have, we'll have to get some when it comes out. Do you have an idea of the date? Hopefully early next year, I'll definitely send some your way as soon as we have it. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, Katie. And I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. You're such a joy to talk to. This was awesome. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 